Um, thanks for coming tonight. We are in a study that Jeff launched last week on the hard sayings of Jesus, and I just want to preface what we're going to talk about tonight. I don't think it's hard to understand the saying that we're going to look at. I think it's more hard to understand why Jesus would say it, um, because I think it means what you think it means. So keep that in mind as we wade through. The, the hard saying is it's hard to kind of wrap our minds around, God, that's kind of an odd thing for him to say. Before we do that, let me start um, by way of illustration, introduction. Have you ever, and don't raise your hands, I know you have, it's universal. I should say, can you remember a time when you did the right thing in the wrong way? A time when you did the right thing in the wrong way. Let me tell you what I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, if I, I live a couple of miles from here. If I don't have a, a lunch with somebody, I'll go home and eat lunch and come back. And so I go home and eat lunch and made a sandwich or whatnot. And I'm about to walk out the door, and I hear this just scream of bloody murder up the stairs. And I know it's my daughter. And I'm like, great. And so I make my way up the stairs, and I start coming down the hallway, and my son meets me about halfway and his head's kind of cocked like this, and he's saying, I'm sorry, Dad. And so I'm going, all right. The culprit has been identified before the crime scene has even been investigated. You know, this is going to be easy. <clears throat> so I come upstairs, and my daughter is on the floor wailing, holding her eye like this. And I said, honey, what happened? And she's like, Walker, Walker threw a bowl and hit me in the head. I said, did you do that? Yeah. And so like every good parent, me and the culprit head to the bedroom for a spanking, which is not the wrong thing that I did, by the way. The wrong thing that I did was my motive. Um, We spank our kids all the time um, to, to correct disobedience and whatnot. But here was what was sinful on my part. Um, My motive was... 20% 20% to correct a bad behavior. And honestly, I think 80% because I wanted him to hurt. Because I wanted him to understand what's, that you just don't say, I'm sorry, and your sister's still crying. I mean, that sinful, yes, spanked my child out of anger. I, it's probably going to happen again. Um, apologize in advance. Here's the point. Why would I tell a story and subject myself to the Department of Human Services. Here's the point. In life, we are so prone to do the right thing the wrong way. We're about to jump right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And as you'll know, you've got, um, when you fast, do this. And when you pray, do this. And when you do this, do this. And all of those things are good and right and true within themselves. But Jesus is addressing them because He knows our proneness is to do the right thing, but in the wrong way. We're all prone to do this, um, but I want to throw something out to you for a minute. Have you ever thought about doing evangelism the wrong way? Because that's what I think we're about to talk about. Have you ever thought about spreading the faith, a great thing, a commanded thing, a duty of all believers... Have you ever thought that might be done by you and I in the wrong way? The hard saying of Jesus that we're about to look at 
is grace for us because it addresses our fallenness and it really gives us grace in how to do this the right way. If you've got your Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. I'm just going to read the one verse and then obviously we'll look at the... The key to interpreting this in almost any passage of Scripture is context. Uh, And I think the context will give us the answer to where we are. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which means Jesus is on a mountain. He's teaching the twelve. A huge crowd comes to listen in on his instruction. And let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Our hard saying for the night from the lips of our Lord. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do... They may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray before we do the wrong, right thing the wrong way and try to study Scripture apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we come before you um, this week. We have heavy hearts as a church. We have experienced significant loss this week, and we pause and praise you uh, for your faithfulness. We thank you that um, Helen Davis tonight's Faith has turned to sight, and prayer has turned to praise, and we rejoice in that. When we pause and pray for, for Glenn and Rob and Emily, that you would continue uh, to give them great comforting grace. We as your children come before your word, and when we first humble ourselves and admit we can't make sense uh, out of the sayings that we would think are easy. Uh, we don't have within us the capacity to rightly understand and apply your word in our lives without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we begin this evening. Uh, by submitting ourselves to your word, by praying that the Holy Spirit would saturate what we're going to do, that the Holy Spirit would give us the ability to rightly understand and apply um, the teaching of our Lord. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think in this text there are there's three things, or we could call them three aids, that would allow you and I to do evangelism rightly. Three things in this text that would allow you and I to do evangelism rightly. And the first is this. We must know ourselves. We must know ourselves. And you might say, where do you get that from the text? Uh, I, along with most commentators, believe that verse 6 is not an island. Even though in a lot of our translations it might be its own separate paragraph. I think verses 1 to 12 fit together. Uh, And let me show you why. Let's, Let's... you know, if, if we look above that, we get this section on, on judging. Don't judge. And a text I think you're very familiar with. Um, you know, don't pick this back out of your friend's eye if you've got a plank in yours and, and, and that sort of stuff. And here's what's going on, I believe. Jesus has just taught about righteousness. And he knows that what's going on in the hearts of the disciples is, oh, great, there are a lot of people around us that aren't righteous. We're going to start pointing out their faults. That's what you want us to do, Right? which is exactly what you and I do. We hear something that's great and we think, you know, I'm not guilty of that, but so-and-so is, and so I'm going to go tell him for whatever reason. He knows that's intrinsically what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the disciples. So the first thing that we need to know is that you and I, as human beings made of the flesh, have an enormous tendency to judge others. Uh, which is, is incredibly counterproductive to evangelism. It's in our DNA to do that. And, and it's, it's interesting here what Jesus is saying when he's talking about judging others. 
Do you know anybody, and you might, I'm this way a lot of times, unfortunately. Do you know anybody that's just hypercritical of like everything? That's what he's talking about. This, this spirit of, of hypercriticism, uh, like the Pharisees, who some of them were probably in the audience. You know, looking, just fault finding all the time. That's the spirit. That's the tendency that Christ is addressing. And then he elaborates that, don't judge, or you two will be judged, with the illustration that I just mentioned. And again, we would hear the illustration, or the first century audience would have gotten the illustration. It was ridiculous. You know, don't, let's look at it, because it's a couple of verses. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The, the words that he would have used in the Greek, they would have got, you know, why would you look at this small piece this speck of wood in your friend's eye when you've got a plank sticking out of your eye and everybody would have thought, oh, that's ridiculous. Which is the point? You know, why would you judge when you yourself have an enormous amount of sin to account for? It's ridiculous. There's enough sin for you and I to fault find with our brothers. And once you, and again, knowing ourselves, if we can ever grasp that, if we can ever grasp the enormity of our sin, it should make us the most gracious people to be around. Should it not? I mean, if we really understand the depravity of our sin and the grace of our Savior, the pagans should want to hang out with us. Not in the sense that they agree with everything that we teach and not in the sense that we are, we are, we, 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 we accept and tolerate everything, but in the sense of we're gracious because we, we're no better. Sovereign grace found us out. That's the only thing that differentiates us. It should permeate our entire worldviews. There's another thing that we must know about ourselves that's in verse 6, which is our actual text. And that is, what is your treasure? Some of your texts might use the word treasure. Some of your texts might use uh, the phrase holy things. Some of your texts use, uh, as the NIV does, don't give your pearls. And we read that, and it, that doesn't, honestly, that doesn't mean a thing to us. Um, because most of you women can go home and you can, you know, do you want to wear a black pearl necklace or a white one? And it's, that's not really a big deal. You know, you could throw out one and you got another one. It's not, it's not a big deal. The hearers of this, though, would have gotten it. Um, a pearl in antiquity there's really nothing, I, I try to think of an illustration for it, there's really not one. It was something that the everyday average commoner could sell everything he owned and would still be light years away from affording one. I mean, it was this valuable, precious thing that meant everything. And the point of the parable, obviously, or the verse is, you don't give to dogs, you don't give to pigs, Something that is sacred. And now, here's where it gets fun. <clears throat> here's the hard saying. Because it looks like in verses 1 to 5, Jesus just said, don't judge. And then it looks like he gets to verse 6 and says, but do judge. Which is it? Well, the answer is both. There's a great difference between judging someone and being discerning. Which is what he's saying in verse 6. There's a huge difference between you and I casting a final judgment upon someone and you and I being discerning, which is the point of the text. Paul even says this, test the spirits. 
How are we going to test the spirits if we're not in ourselves discerning? Again, back to the point, which really all I think this harnesses around is, what is sacred? And it doesn't take a seminary education um, to figure out Jesus is talking about the gospel. Some of your translations say holy things. He's talking about everything he's talked about in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. Righteousness, kingdom living, um, his, his, his salvific work, the reign of, the reign of righteousness. And, and he's saying all of these things, all of these teachings that I'm giving you, the gospel itself, you've got to be discerning. You wouldn't throw that out in the midst uh, of something to destroy. And, and here's what I want the hard question for you tonight. Um, is the gospel your treasure? And you might sit there and think, of course it is. It's Wednesday night and we're here. Um, you know, that's what you're supposed to say. But in reality, is it? Is it really? I mean, is it the thing that you would look at in your life and say, you know what? It's more valuable than all of those things piled up. There's nothing more valuable than this. And then my next question would be, is it evident? If it's not, do you think it might affect our evangelistic encounters? Years ago, um, I needed, I think it was two or three years ago, I needed a car, um, which I hate. I used to love, it was a, in high school, I'd buy a car like every other week. I just thought it was fun to buy one and sell it. And, but it's not fun anymore. Uh, so I started adding up how much tax you pay. And anyway, I needed a car, and so I found in the auto trader my budget, there was a 98 black Volkswagen Jetta. Does anybody have a Volkswagen Jetta? Nobody does? Nobody does? Nobody does? Good. Um, this was before I really researched a whole lot in Consumer Reports and found out I'm glad I didn't get it. But anyway, I go show up at this lot, and it was really weird. I'm not going to mention the dealership. It wasn't one of Ernie's. But I show up, and, you know, usually... It's like a mob of just, you know, if you look like you might be able to afford something or you're an easy sell, that you're, you know, you're going to leave the car. And so I show up and, and, I, and, I, and I get out of my car and nobody's mobbing me, which was odd. And I finally find this guy and I said, do you work here? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, can I look at this car? I had the auto trader and he's like, yeah. And so we get out there and, um, and I'm going through the specs because I've kind of done a little bit of my homework. And I said, and, you know, I've read they have electrical problems. He's like, yeah, they're pretty bad about that. And I'm like, sweet. Um, you know, and I also heard that like 50,000 miles, you might have to put a transmission in it. And he's like, yeah, you probably will. And after about five minutes, because of his lack of work ethic and desire to really not be there, and is pretty much admitting that the product was garbage, I passed. Because he's not excited about, you know, it's a great day in the car business. I'm so glad you're here. And we've got this great Jetta. I pass. And here's why I tell you the story. If the gospel doesn't look beautiful in your life, do you think they want it? I mean, we're watched all the time by an unbelieving world. If it's not beautiful and precious and valuable to you and I, why in the world would they want it? I think myself included, myself probably more than anyone else, you and I need to ask the Holy Spirit of God to convict and humble us in these areas before we set out to evangelize the neighborhood. We need to set back, is this beautiful? Am I hypercritical? 
Maybe I need to spend some time in prayer and, and, and beg that the Holy Spirit would change this in my life. Remember that the goal of the gospel, the goal of Christ's encounter um, was not to condemn. The goal of his encounter is always to help and to save. And we'll look at another example of that in a minute. First of all, you've got to know yourself. Is the, is the gospel beautiful? Is the Savior lovely? Secondly, which is maybe the main point of the text, we've got to know our audience. And this is, is, is interesting um, to me. It helps us decipher um, verses 7 and 8. There seems to be two classes mentioned, first of all, in verse 6. Dogs and pigs. And a lot of people have written what they think that means. The pigs are the Jews, and the dogs are whatever. And I, along with people that are way smarter than any of us, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think this is a class of people that are lumped together. And, and let me, before we look at what that means, when we say dogs, get like fluffy and muffin out of your mind. Because it was totally different in the first century. Um, a dog was not domestic. It was, a, it was, it was viewed as a, as a savage animal that roamed around and ate garbage at night. Nobody, it wouldn't have been a pet. Um, when, when he said, you know, you wouldn't give it to a dog, everybody would have thought, no, of course not. And then, of course, pigs may even be worse. It was an animal that is not fit for sacrifice. It's not fit for eating. It's, it's totally prohibited. And so, you know, the, the lights are going off in the first century audience. You know, you don't give a precious thing to something that, 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 that can't appreciate it. Which is what makes this a hard saying. Pigs and dogs have one-track minds. They want to eat in antiquity. They're trying to stay alive. They're trying to eat. And the point of what Jesus is saying is, you don't offer a savage beast a pearl. Because what a pig's going to do is figure out that he can't eat it and get really ticked off at you and then try to destroy it. And what a savage dog might do is figure out that he can't eat it and turn and destroy you, which is what Jesus says in verse 6. Now, here is the spiritual point to the earthly story. You don't offer the most precious thing in life to those who can't appreciate it or to whom it might anger or to those that it might cause to be outraged. And I know you're thinking, you can't be saying that. I'm not. Jesus is saying it. This is what our Lord and Master is saying. That's why it is a hard saying. Is he saying, are you telling me that Jesus is saying, there is a point when I am to withhold the proclamation of the gospel from someone? And the answer is yes. Isn't it interesting that Jesus does the same thing? Compare and contrast Jesus before Pilate and Jesus before Herod. Jesus answers a whole bunch of, are you the son of man? It is, it is as you say. And then he gets before Herod and doesn't say a word. Why not? He's practicing what he preached. Have you ever noticed the way Jesus conducts himself with the majority of the Pharisees and the way Jesus conducts himself with quote-unquote, sinners. He's really responsive to one, but to another one he's not. What about when they ask Jesus, hey, how about another, you know, you just gave us a bunch of bread. How about a big sign today? Why didn't he do it? Verse 6. You're not getting a sign. 
You don't care about a sign. You just want some more bread. Because just like pigs and dogs, all you want to do is eat, and you think it's great that I can just make bread and feed you, which is why they were following him. And it was really convenient that he also healed their sick. Here's the modern-day relevance, and I hope this doesn't offend you. I'm sure, I, I pray that it won't. I've... <clears throat> There's not just one style of evangelism. Jesus says, okay, don't, there might be a point where that you don't offer the gospel. Well, the next part becomes, well, when is it? Um, if you're going to do EE or you're going to do door-to-door evangelism, and I've never done door-to-door evangelism, but I'm sure that you don't knock on the door and say, look what I got for you. Right? There has got to be a way and a process by which you determine, is this person interested in spiritual things? Uh, For example, if you're in the airport and you ask the passenger next to you, can I ask you two questions? And they say no, you're done. It's real simple. Does that mean that you're calling this person a dog and a pig? Not no. What we're inferring is, and we're not saying that this person is, is, is never going to become a Christian. What we're saying is, at this point, I'm looking at this individual and, and, and concluding they're not interested in what I have to say. So I am not going to give them an opportunity to blaspheme the gospel because it's beautiful. If they don't want it right now, their blood is not on my hands like I was taught in Sunday school, which was not here. That's No. If they don't want it, the Holy Spirit is not active in their heart at that moment, and you move on. If the Holy Spirit wants them, He's going to get them. But if it's not at that moment, you don't then say, well, look, I got this, and I got this, and I got this, and just give them tons of reason to blaspheme and to ridicule the most beautiful thing in your life. I think a lot of the New Testament teaches relational evangelism, which means you and I get real dirty and nasty in the, in the lives of unbelievers. We, we make friends with unbelievers because the goal is one day to preach them the gospel. We intertwine our lives with our neighbors who are outside of Christ, and then we can tell. Would today be a good day to talk about spirits? Let me test the waters and see, and if it's not, I wait. The thing that's hard about relational evangelism is it takes time. And it takes a lot of work. And we are so programmed for instantaneous results. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a hero of mine, said, once we discern this, so let's say, okay, i got this person in my life, they're an unbeliever. I think they might be interested. This isn't part of the text, but I thought it might minister to you. Once that we discern this, there is one doctrine that we must emphasize alone, which is justification by faith. A lot of times, and I admit growing up, you know, you've got this guy that's so burdened, and there's all these questions that they want to ask. Um, If your unbelieving friend can't wrap their minds around their need for salvation, they're never going to understand the millennial reign. You know, we're not much further ahead of them, if any. Um, all, your, all of our discussion on eschatology and all our discussion on all this thing means nothing to one who can't grasp their own need for salvation. We see Christ do this. One of my favorite texts in Scripture um, is with the woman at the well. Do you remember that? It's a glorious text. Shows up in Samaria and it's noon. And, of course, Samaria and Jews are supposed to hate each other. Um, and, and what a great illustration that Jesus knows his audience. Asked her for a drink of water. And now she just wants to talk about worship. 
You know, which is really odd because we're going to find out a couple of verses later. Jesus knows she's had like five husbands and now she's like, just for, just give me a man. I'm just living with somebody. Just give me somebody. And he knows all this. And, and you know, how did he not, how did he keep his, it, it's interesting to me to think, how are you not laughing at this woman who wants to talk to you about worship and she doesn't get anything. And it's so interesting that Jesus spends time and gets to know her and so knows his audience that she wants to run down all these rabbit trails, you know, what do we worship and all this stuff. And he keeps coming back to, look, you need a Savior. You know, don't worry about that. You've got to get your mind around the essential. Well, one day a Savior is going to come and he's going to explain all this and then, you know, you're in luck. <laughs> he's here. Which is the way I think relational evangelism is to be done. It's what we are to do. He, he loves her. He doesn't judge her. He loves this woman that is an outsider of the faith and his desire is to help her. And you and I, I think, in the context of right evangelism, have to know our audience. And please, please don't leave here saying, I don't think you should do EE, I don't think you should do order to evangelism. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is that surely, there's, surely you, test, you know the audience before that you get into all of that which requires work, um, which is difficult. Lastly, we've got to know ourselves. We've got to know our audience. We've got to know our abilities. And this is why I believe verse 6 is not an island. I think verse 6 bridges verses 1 to 5 to 7 and 12. And let's um, look at these together. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And he who... And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. We can stop there. The same thing that's going on in your mind right now had to have been going on in the disciples' mind. Jesus has just said there comes a point where if someone harshly rejects and refuses and is adamant against the gospel, you stop. So surely surely Thomas, at least, is sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute. How do we know? How do I know if the person before... How do I know... Where do I know? I think that's the point of verse 8. Ask, seek, and knock are obviously all referring to prayer. It's difficult. It's hard. It's going to require a great sense of discernment. It's going to require a lot of wisdom. And we don't have it. You and I must remember that we're helpless beggars, yet gloriously saved and adopted by God. We have not the ability to give the unregenerate man what he needs. We can't expect to do evangelism rightly in the flesh, completely divorced from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells those who may be already thinking, how in the world are we ever going to be able to do this? Ask. Well, what do we ask for? How about wisdom? How about a great measure of restraining grace, not to judge others, but to be wise and discerning. Give me the ability when I get to the airport in 30 minutes and I get in a conversation, give me the ability, give me the ability to sense the Holy Spirit, whether he is in it or not. Is today a day to plant relational seeds or a day to reap a harvest? So I think a lot of times when we think of evangelism, we think of, you know, we're going to grab the sickle and go reap the harvest. And maybe that's the case. But the New Testament seems to say a lot about sowing seeds, which is just as important. We need wisdom from God. 
in order to determine which one that we're called to do. That means we trust in His sovereignty over our encounters with unbelievers and not our own. Because you and I have got to know in the base of our souls what our unbelieving friends need, we can't give them. We cannot impart to them a new nature. We cannot impart to our neighbors rebirth. God alone can give them that, which should change the way that we approach evangelism. <laughs> Have you ever seen or read any of the stories about um, professional athletes and, and um, how superstitious they are before games? It's ridiculous. Like from the time they roll out of bed in the morning, you've got to eat the certain bread. There's a lot of guys who will only eat you know, Honey Nut Cheerios with orange juice and no milk. And they get to the stadium that day, and already at their locker, you know, their shoes are out facing their name, and you've got to put the right shoe on first, and the, and the right sock on the right foot first, and then the left one, and then you put the shorts on, and there's a certain CD that they have to listen to, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Because they're trusting, if I just do these things right at work last week. I was thinking in my office, I wonder if we do that in regards to evangelism. Do we pull up our spirituals and say, you know what? If I just do this, 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 and this the right way, this is going to work. You know, if I just listen to the right song on the radio, on the way to the apartment complex, everything is going to be all right. I'm ashamed to tell you I grew up in an environment, I think, um, I think the teachings of evangelism in my life were that. It's your responsibility and you better catch the fish, and you better bring them in, and if you don't, you're in big trouble with God. Which, you know, that's a great ideology, but found nowhere in Scripture. That's trust in things that I do. I don't want to trust in what I do. I can't do anything but mess things up. The whole point of that, I think, is this. Our pregame, if you will, and that sounds so awful to apply to the term evangelism should be humble submission to the Spirit of God's leading. Just bring, you know, in in our morning devotions, surely we beg, you know, don't let me pass the lady at Kroger without viewing her as valuable. Don't let me view my clients as not valuable. Are you leading unbelievers into my life today who need the gospel? Make me sensitive to your leading and then give me grace to present your beauty and get out of the way. I'll close with another quote from Martin Luther. Here's how he sums up verse 6. A man who is preaching the truth can be guilty of preaching it in an unworthy manner. You and I must never be the cause of antagonism. We must always preach the truth in love. And if we cause offense, it should always be the offense of the cross, not anything offensive in the preacher. Our Lord is teaching that here. Is that not liberating? If, if, the, if, if Christ is lovely, does that not give you all the freedom in the world to say, Holy Spirit, I am at your disposal. Give me wisdom. Oh, for an abundance of grace to do evangelism the right thing in the right way as did our Master for His sake and for His glory. Let me pray for our time. Father, we thank you this evening uh, to come together and to look at your word and, and, and to ponder it and, and to look at a difficult saying, but yet it makes all the sense in the world. Why would we take 
the, the beauty um, of our Lord Jesus in his life and work and incarnation and death and resurrection and exaltation and hand it over to someone to be blasphemed. <clears throat> I pray that you would give us great wisdom. I pray that you would first soften our hearts uh, and humble us as we stand before your holiness to know that we are, are, are not at all uh, apt to judge anyone. And I pray that you would give us a great love for the lost. And I pray that you would give us great wisdom and ability to discern when we enter encounters with them. Is this someone that is interested in, in the gospel? And if it is, give us grace to engage in a long relationship. But maybe even more so, I pray that you would give us grace for unbelievers whose lives and whose eyes you haven't opened yet. That when we begin to tell them the lovelies of our Savior, if we get to that point and they're not interested, would you give us grace to restrain this thing that is altogether lovely in our own eyes and to not subject it to blasphemy and ridicule? We pray that you would allow us to do evangelism rightly for your name's sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.